How many of you, let me start with this question, how many of you have opened up the Bible and felt like you needed a dictionary to understand some of the complex words? Have you ever opened up the Bible and you kind of felt overwhelmed because you saw words like justification and sanctification? And here goes a favorite one, propitiation or maybe expiation. And it makes you feel over your heads because let's be honest, words like redemption and reconciliation were written in a particular context that was different from, our, from ours. And so people who wrote the Bible, they lived in a different world and they used different vernacular. They had a different language. They had different ways of thinking. As you know, they had different experiences and as you can imagine, had a different language. So sometime when you read these words, it can be very confusing. But let me just tell you that you don't need to have a seminary degree in order to understand them. No, with a little bit of effort and a little bit of guidance, anyone can learn them. And then what you'll learn is that they're full of meaning and they're replete of, of depth and significance. And they let us know a little bit about who God is, how much he loves us, and tells us even more about his plan for salvation, this rescue plan that he intacted 2,000 years ago to save our souls. And so what I want to do today is I want to kick off a new sermon collection called the big words of the Bible. And from now until Easter, we're going to walk through some of these big and what we can describe as some complex words so that you can understand Jesus and the depth that he has gone through in order to save people. So if you're a believer in here, let me just say welcome. So glad that you're here today. Thank you for coming to worship. Y'all got here a little late, but I'm still happy that you came. Uh, Cause I look back at 11, I was like, Ooh, well, we might as well just cancel this second service. But anyway, anyway, I'm happy you're here. If you're a faith, if you're a believer in Christ, man, let me just say that I hope that this series is inspiring to you. I hope that it encourages your mind. I hope that it stirs your spirit and it illuminates your mind and your heart so you can understand the depth of God's love for you and the length that he went through in order to save you. If, if you're a skeptic or maybe you're on, on the fence about the Christian faith and you're wondering, eh, I don't know, pastor. How do these ancient words have modern relevance? Well, I hope that these words, as we study them, as we unpack them, that it'll, I'll show you how they affect your life in profound ways. And so what you'll see is what I would like to describe as some incredible stuff. Because you'll see the multiple dimensions of God's love and the lengths he went through to save each one of us. You'll see a different aspect of his character, how he's self-sufficient and loving and compassionate and how he put together this plan to save humanity. So as we'll unpack these words together, you'll be exposed to the beautiful picture or this beautiful mosaic of God's love and mercy. But before we kick off this series... I think we should talk about or take a moment to talk about the word that makes all these other beautiful words a necessity. And it's a one syllable word that has three letters that might be small in size, but it's mighty in impact. And that's the word sin. It's the word sin. Now, as some of you know, the summertime is right around the corner. Oh, y'all excited about that? That's good. That's good. That means that means that the days are going to be longer. You're going to be going to the shore. Trips to readers are going to become mandatory, are they not? Because nothing quite screams summertime like a soft pretzel and some soft serve ice cream or maybe a gelato, whatever it is. But, but if you're from South Jersey and particularly Burlington County, I'm going to split my audience here. Um, there's another summertime staple. 
It's flat. It's syrupy. It's, it's like a combination of Coca-Cola and Sprite. And it's this delicacy called Boost. Boost is so delicious, right? It's like, it's thick and it's syrupy. It's like, some people say that it's a, an elixir for colicky babies. Others say that it's a soft drink. All I know is that it's been produced for over 100 years and that people absolutely love Boost. It's wildly, wildly popular. And I just got to let you know, I'm a fan of Boost. Oh, I love it. I, I like drinking it out of a styrofoam cup with a lemon over Chick-fil-A ice. I just love it. It's just, it is so delicious. Amen, somebody in here. And it's got to be a little bit sugary. That's the little syrupy. That's what makes it delicious. It is an absolute delicacy. And I got some intel recently that we're going to be drinking it on tap in heaven. That's right. We'll be drinking it on tap. And on top of that, we're going to be eating it next to the Chick-fil-A sandwiches. Because I don't care how many additives are in there. That's still Jesus's bird. That's what the Lord would be eating. That's what he fed the children of Israelites. In the, in, in the wilderness, it was manna. He was talking about Chick-fil-A sandwiches. It's, it's going to be delightful. It's delicious. I, I, I just love drinking. You didn't even notice about me, did you, babe? Did you? You didn't know that? I, I know. I know. You're like, well, anyway, let me not say that. Anyway, so I love drinking Boost. I'm going to get like five growlers. If you want to sponsor me as a Boost sponsor, you can do that. But, but I love drinking Boost, but sometimes I struggle buying it at delis. And convenience stores, not because it's not readily available, but because sometimes it's too watered down. And when it's too watered down, what happens is it loses its potency. It's not as delectable. It's not as delicious. It's kind of a little bit. It's not as tasty as it could be. And friends, let me just say that we live in a cultural moment right now where sin has been watered down. That the true nature and the true impact of sin has been diminished and developed. And some of us believe that sin is nothing more than harmless choices and wrong decisions. Friends, it's just been watered down. It's, loose, it's lost its potency in our society. It, it, it's, it's, it, we've forgotten how it's impacted the world. On top of that, many of us are influenced by media and entertainment. It has a significant influence on us, does it not? So what it does is it, is it affects people's perception of sin. So the TV shows we watch, the movies we watch, the music that we listen to, it often depicts sinful acts in an acceptable way. So things that people were once ashamed of, now they receive notoriety over. And so there's this exposure to sin on a regular basis. So what it causes us to happen is we become desensitized to it. When you see it all the time, when it's something that's been affirmed, we just become desensitized to it. And when you downplay the seriousness of sin, you lose sight of our need for a savior through Jesus Christ. And that is, friends, what I believe prompted the Apostle John to write this message today. The Apostle John writes 1 John, this epistle, he's in his late 80s at this point. He's already, he hasn't retired yet. He's still working. He's like, I'm not going to rust out on the bench. I'm going to wear out on the field. And so he's overseeing these group of churches in this place called Asia Minor. Asia Minor is modern day Turkey. And John has been through so much at this point. He's walked with Jesus for three years of his ministry. 
He has, he's taken care of Jesus's mother. He laid his head on Jesus's side while he was at the Last Supper. He wrote the epistle of John. He said that he was the one in whom Jesus loved. He took care of Jesus's mother. As I said, he helped develop the old churches and so much more. And God transformed him from an angry son of thunder to a disciple of love. But John, toward the end of his life, he picks up his pen with his feeble hand and he begins to write because he's concerned. And he's concerned that the seriousness of sin has been downplayed and dismissed. So in the last stretch of his life, with his hand trembling, he writes in 1 John 3, 7, he says, children, let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you. Because I know that some of us think that conspiracy theories are something that has just happened in modern day. But conspiracy theories are something that's been going on all the way back to Jesus' day. And so you had these false teachers that were going around to the churches and they were spreading this conspiracy theory. It was, it was called Gnosticism. Somebody say Gnosticism. It, it, Gnosticism is the belief that the material world is evil. And because the material world is evil, that means that the spirit is good. And because and, and, and that being the case, it means that our spirits are locked inside of our bodies. And so because they created this false dichotomy, it creates a huge impact in the church and in the faith community. Because they say that if the material is evil and the spirit is good, then that means that Jesus could not have become a man. Because Jesus, if he became a man, that means that he would be participating in evil. And so John is worried about this for a number of ways. Firstly, he's saying, I walked with Jesus for three years. And I don't know about you, but I've never seen a spirit eat a fish. I've never seen a spirit fit on, spit on the ground, make mud and touch somebody's eye. I've never seen a spirit go and feed 4,000 men and then 5,000 later. I've never seen that. So you're invalidating my experience. But there's something else that's deeply sinister. That because it means that if Jesus is not human, then he can't empathize with the human struggle. And, and, and it's essential to the Christian faith because Christians believe in something called the hypostatic union. We believe that God is 100% man and he's 100% God. If he's not human, then that means that he's not, he can't experience our pain and our grief and our hardship. But no, Jesus became a man and he experienced the same tribulation and the same temptation and the same limitations that we experienced on earth. And the beautiful thing about Jesus becoming a man is that he offers us comfort in the midst of them. And so it's a powerful reminder that in trials, you and I are simply not alone. So knowing that Jesus became a man becomes the source of hope. And it assures us when we're going through it that God has already experienced it and he'll be our strength while we endure. But let's be honest, it's not just that, understand, that Jesus understands us. Because this belief, friends, is much more insidious. Because if Jesus wasn't fully human, then it means that he did not represent humanity. And if he did not represent humanity, then he cannot offer a sacrifice on behalf of our sins. Why? Because he's not man enough to owe our debt, and he would only be God enough to pay our debt. So if we deny his humanity, we diminish the significance of his sacrifice on the cross, and therefore we put our salvation at risk. 
Are y'all with me, church? But there's something else that's very, very sinister. See, um, if, if Jesus is not a man, then it means that he did not model how we should live our lives. One of the reasons that Jesus became man is so that we can have an example of how we should model and live our lives. Not only was he sinless, but he loved others. Jesus was sacrificial, was he not? He, he loved others. He, 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 he was an example of God's will. And if he never became a human and didn't model how we should live, then we can justify any behavior that we wanted. Right? It produces, when you justify any behavior that you want, you know what it produces? And I can do what I want because I'm grown mentality. I can do what I want because I pay my bills and don't nobody take care of me. I can do what I want. I develop a me first mindset and that only leads to further destruction. It leads to selfishness and the deterioration of our relationships. And so John attacks this heresy head on. He said, if you live your life without Jesus being your model, then you're choosing to live your life in something with something called sin and lawlessness. Sin and lawlessness. Look what it says in chapter 3, verse 4. It says, everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Let's work with the former, then we'll go back to the latter. The word sin in the words of Dr. Tony Evans, is anything in the creature that's contrary to the creator. Sin is anything in the creature that is unlike, contradictory, or contrasting its creator. I like how the North African Bishop Augustine said it. He said, sin is believing that you are self-centered, self-dependent, and self-sustained. And so when you get deeper into your sin, you get into your independence. That's why I'm not really impressed by your independence. Because when you're independent, you're functionally saying that I can work independently who, of the creator who is God. And so throughout the New Testament, what we see is that there are a multiplicity of dimensions regarding sin. So there's a multiplicity of definitions. One of them is transgressions. Somebody say transgression. A transgression is when God told you to do something, either by taking the word and speaking to your heart or by using the word to inform you of something and you don't do it. You decide that you know what's best for you. Then there's this thing called missing the mark. Missing the mark. Uh, anybody ever got a, jo a bad job review? Don't put your hands up. But you, you ever got a bad job review? And you're like, why in the world would you put this thing on my report? Now I can't get a promotion. Why would you tell them? That I'm an hour and I'm 30 minutes late to my hour lunch break. Why would you say that? So what happens when you're missing the mark is it's not that you're doing something wrong necessarily, but it's that you're not meeting up to one's expectations. And what God says to each of us when he's saying we're missing the mark, he's saying you're just kind of not hitting my expectations. My expectations are perfection and holiness and you live in a putrid manner and you make yourself the center of attention. And then there's this thing called iniquities. This is another dimension. Iniquity is when you twist or pervert something. This is deception. This is when you're actually late to work, but you tell your boss that you got caught in traffic. This is, this is when we take God's laws and we pervert it and we change it in a way. But then the last one that he used and the one that Jan, John uses in this verse is the word lawlessness. Lawlessness. Now, I know that that word is not common in our vernacular, is it? 
You don't just run and tell people, oh, you're being lawless. You don't say that unless it's like a 70s flick or something like that. Like, we don't say that. But let me just say, it might not be a common word, but it's a common practice. Because this word is, a, is, a, is, is two words put together. It's anomia. Gee, I practice that too. But it's anomia. The word I means without. Nomos means to live without law. So what it's emphasizing is that when someone is living without regard to God's law and they rebel against his authority. When someone is living lawlessly, they're saying that they're saying essentially that I know better about my life than God knows about my life. I can do what I want when I want, how I want, in the way I want without regard to what God has to say because I'm grown after all and I pay my own bills. And I can do what I want. It says you can love God. You can go to church. You can be a part of the dream team. You can drop your kids off at the ministry. You can sing on the stage. You can preach sermons and you can experience God's love. But you do you can do whatever you want outside of church. It's a heresy that says that God does not care about human behavior. So therefore, I can spend time doing what I like. I can do what I want to do sexually. I can do what I want to do with my hobbies because it's my life and I'm in charge. I am the center of the universe. So instead, it teaches us to enjoy God's love, but not follow God's commands. Do what makes you happy. Do you, boo. Do you. Do what's best for you. Do do what makes you happy. And let me just tell you, this is not talking about struggling Christians that are fighting to live for Jesus. No, this is referring to people who know the word, grew up under the word, and still do what they want. You've been warned. You've done listening to 50, 11 sermons, and you still doing exactly what you want day after day, minute after minute. You leave here and go home as though the things that you've heard in the assembly and the tears that you said and while you worship have nothing to do with your life. That's what he's saying. But you know, we're just being like our daddies, right? Adam and Eve, our daddy and mommy, Adam and Eve, because isn't this what they did in the garden? Didn't they live lawlessly? Didn't God say, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they decided that good and evil, and they decided that they were going to transgress his explicit commandment? Wasn't this a direct violation of God's goodness? Didn't they doubt God's goodness and, and sought to be their own moral authorities? They chose what was right and wrong. They usurped God's authority and placed themselves in position. But let me just tell you, this is not a past problem. It's still a, it's still a present predicament. Because think about it. We live in a society right now, and I've alluded to this earlier, but we live in a society right now that encourages you to do what you want. We're bombarded with messages to, to put our needs above everyone. And, to, and as a result, we prioritize our desires. We are desensitized to our sin. And then we treat God's commands like they're suggestions. Oh, wretched people that we are. And let me just tell you, we're going to get spicy real quick. Are you ready? You're like, well, we're, we're spicy enough, aren't we? Are we spicy enough? You're just coming for my whole life. That's why I haven't amen to you at all. We're going to get spicier. We're going to get spicier here. John says that when you live this way, when you live your life lawlessly, as though you are throwing off the commands of God and you become a moral authority in and of yourself, you are participating in something called Satanism. Satanism. 
Look what he said. You don't believe me, do you? Look what he says in 1 John 3, verse 8. He said, the one who commits sin or practices sin, lawless sin, is of the what? Say that loud enough. You didn't say that loud enough. Let me start over. The one who commits, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And the son of God was revealed for the purpose to destroy the devil's work. Now, I'm not saying that you have a little altar to Satan in your closet. If you do, you need to repent. If you do, you need to repent. And I'm not saying that you're purposely and and defying God. But see, there's a lot of misunderstanding around this idea of Satanism. Satanism is, is not limited to the Montero singer Little Nas X twerking on a horn deity in hell in a music video. Satanism is not limited to rituals. It's not limited to artists particularly selling their soul. It's not limited to going to concerts that elicit all type of demons and demonic things. Let me go on. I'll just, I'll save that for later. It's not elicited to that. And in form and reality, Satanism, Satanists do not believe that Satan is a literal entity. But rather they use Satan as a symbol of individualism and rebellion. And so John explains that when you are lawless, this is a manifestation of Satanism. So this means that you've got a little bit more old town road in you than you really think you have. Now, you might be asking, well, why is that Satanism? Well, because Satan is the ultimate rebel. He was discontent with his place in eternity in heavens. He wanted to have the glory of God, so he exalted himself. God took him and threw him into the earth, and all the, and some demons followed him. What he did was he was the ultimate rebel. He rejected the authority of God, and he sought to establish his own kingdom. And those who reject God's law, Those who deny God's authority and seek to establish their kingdom outside of God's rules, they are following in the footsteps of Satan and rebelling against God. I know that ain't popular preaching, but it's true. It's tight, but it's right. So we can point to artists and rituals and music videos and the things we see, but a lot of us have Montero going through our souls right now. Because deep down, we want to choose what's right for us. Deep down, we think we're the authority. And on top of that, isn't Satan described in 2 Thessalonians 8, 9 as the lawless one? So when you live your life where you put your desires at the center and live without regard to God's laws and live in accordance to your passions, you align with Satan's rebellion against God. That's true Satanism. So you don't have to have altars and be a part of a satanic church in order to worship and follow Satan's rules. But Satan, but 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 sin manifests itself in this way. It's deeply pervasive. And so the question that I have is, how does God deal with this? When people are perverse and they want to choose what's good for themselves, how did God do it? And I'm so thankful that he gave a solution here in 1 John 3, 5. Look what it says. It says, he, he says, you know that he was revealed. Somebody say revealed. So that he might what? Take away sin because in him is no sin. I know a few of you were sick last week. I hope you're doing well. Well, I hope you didn't come to church sick, but I'm glad. I'm glad I know you caught us online. 
Uh, I'm glad, I'm happy about that. But let me, let me just say something, and I know this is going to be wildly unpopular. And just like the boost introduction, this is going to divide my crowd, okay? But um, saltine crackers, Schweppes ginger ale, Vicks Vapor Rub. And going and laying down is not medication. That's just not medication. I just want to let you know. I, I know that grandma told you that. I know she put that Vaseline and that Vicks Vapor Rub on your feet, and then she'd take the sock and put it under there, and she would claim that it would clear up your nostrils. I'm not saying it didn't deal with the symptoms, but I'm saying that it didn't deal with the root of the problem. And so what I'm saying is 2,000 years ago, with Jesus' arrival to the earth, he didn't just give you good works and model good works to deal with the symptoms. Because otherwise, that wouldn't have been any better than ginger ale to deal with the flu. Or, 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 or Vicks Vapor Rub to deal with COVID. No, no, you need strong medication in order to deal with those things, to get to the root of it. And Jesus just wasn't some magician. He just, he just didn't come to earth and just perform miracles. No, he was revealed by God to deal with our biggest issue, which is the sinfulness that separates him and us together. Like he didn't, here's what I love about Jesus. He didn't come to pontificate about things. He didn't come to talk about the powers of darkness. He came to deal with that in church. That is what he did 2,000 years on the cross of Calvary. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was hanging on the cross, and in that moment, all of the sins from the past, the present, and the future were laid on Jesus. He, he took the punishment that you and I deserve. Let me just tell you, he paid the price for our lawlessness. He covered the cost of our iniquity. He procured our unbelief. He paid for our penalty of death. He provided a model of sacrifice. He defeated satanic forces. And he provided a way for us to overcome our separation from God. This is the gospel, friends, is that he overcame it. But not only did he overcome it three days later. With all power in his hand, he rose from the grave to show that the deposit of our sin had been covered. To show that sin, hell, death, iniquity, transgression, unbelief, lawlessness, none of that has to have power over you. Because when you put your faith in Christ, you and I are resurrected with him. That's what it is. He's like, we can overcome death. Let, can I just give you something else parenthetically? Just real parenthetically, listen, this is, I want you to know that this word revealed is in the passive voice. It's in the passive voice. What that means is that the subject, who is Jesus, was the recipient rather than the performer of the action. Y'all with me so far? So what it means is Jesus didn't reveal himself. God the Father revealed him at the perfect time. Come on over here for a second. Let me tell you, I know that you want vindication. I know that you want your name in lights. I, want, I know you want your platform. I know you want to people to know who you are. But let me just tell you, you don't have to reveal yourself. You need to wait for Jesus to reveal you at the right time. Because you want five-story anointing, but you don't have the five levels of stories of depth in order to handle what God has for you yet. You don't have it all yet, but if you just give it some time and trust in Jesus and continue walking in faith and believing that he can do exceedingly, abundantly, above all you can ask or think, what I'm saying is he will reveal you at the right time. 
It just might not be your time yet. So he goes on here, and I'm glad you're in a clapping mood. I'm so glad. Not because I need the affirmation, but because I need to come down your street and get a little more spicy. But not only does it say that he revealed Jesus, but it also say, says that he takes sin away. I like the word that he uses here. He's talking about lifting up something heavy and carrying it. I like to talk about my dad. Man, my dad, I told you, he worked at GM, so he was all buff and strong. You know what I'm saying? Like, he was all buff and cut up. I would show you a picture of him. He looked like Richard Roundtree. Handsome dude, smooth, all of that. But when we would move furniture together, I could never get it on my own. But my dad would, like, lift it up, and then he would give me a reward for just helping him with the heavy couches in the house. And that's kind of what Jesus has done. He's like, I know you can't lift up your sin. I know you can't carry your iniquity. I know you can't pick up your transgression. So guess what? I'm going to do it on the cross of Calvary for you, and I'm going to resurrect two thousand. Two th- I'm going to resurrect three days later to deal with your sin. I'm going to lift it up for you. And so one of the ways that he carries it away practically is through something we call confession. Confession. <laughs> he says it a few chapters earlier in James one nine. He says if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us for our sins. Confession is saying the same thing about your sin that God says about your sin. So when, when, when you commit a sin, when you actively go in a direction that God doesn't want you to go, all we have to do is come to him and ask him to restore us and to redeem us and to clean our hearts and restore our relationship with him. That's the vertical dimension of confession. And so when you mess up, some of you are like, oh, that's good but not so fast because not only is there a vertical dimension of confession, but there's also a horizontal portion of confession as well. Jesus, James, a little brother lets us know. He says it like this in James five sixteen. Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be what? Y'all didn't say that really strong. Let me, let me start over. Therefore confess your sins to each other. And pray for each other that you may be what? Prayer of the righteous person is effective. So this is what it means. It means you go to God for your forgiveness, but he wants you to go to other people for your healing. Are you with me? To say it another way, yep, that's what I want to say. Never mind. So when you confess your sins to other people, it's a sign of accountability and humility. Because when you confess your sin... You're letting other people know that you're not perfect and that you need help on this journey. And on top of that, you can express your emotions in a way and ask for encouragement. And that's what leads to restoration. But here's the problem. When you fail to confess your sin to other people, you deny yourself of experiencing the healing that God provides through Jesus Christ. The summertime is almost here. And some of us, when you go to the beach, I love beach balls. You can just kind of hit them in the air. But if you try to take a beach ball and hold it underwater, eventually it's going to come up and cause destruction. Not destruction, but eventually it's going to come up. And what's happening with some of us is you are living a life right now that's not free because you are trying to keep the beach ball of sin underneath the water of confession. That's what's happening. But let me just tell you something. 
And some of you are harboring secrets. And some of us are living or trying to cultivate a culture of secrecy in our lives. But I just want to encourage you that when you hold on to that secret, all it is, is you're letting it fester. You remember David and Bathsheba? You remember them? Where David was, should have been out to war with the kings, but he was on a rooftop and he saw Uriah's wife. And he slept with her. And then after he slept with her, instead of him confessing his sin, what he decided to do was she sent him that text that said, I'm late text. She said, I'm pregnant. And so instead of him confessing his sin, he decided to bring Uriah back home and get Uriah drunk. And then on top of that, then Uriah was like, no, I can't do that. He's like, why don't you go back home? And eventually he led to him getting killed. You know what happened? The more he allowed sin to fester in private, the more destructive it became in public. You remember Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 6 when they lied to the apostles and they told them that they had sold all the goods and, and that they laid it at the apostles' feet when they really held back some of it? They could have been honest about it. They could have been transparent about it. But then Sapphira came in She said, and, and Peter asked her, did you sell this field for such and such a price? And she said, yes, I did. She said, well, you know what? You see those men at the door? Those same men that carried your husband's body out are going to carry your body out right now and they're going to take you and bury you. And immediately the spirit said she passed away. Now, thank God that don't happen when we lie now. Because we all would be dead. Yeah, we'd be dead. Just, just gone. But what it shows is, is that when you try to hide sin, it'll always catch up to you. I don't like scary movies. I don't like them. But there's this the Halloween movie with Jamie Lee Curtis. Y'all seen that movie before? They got a movie in every scene. Like in every generation, they have a movie. And it seemed like Jason just comes with the knife and he's just walking slowly. And I'm like, if a man is walking like that, I can outrun him at least. Get in the car or something. But eventually, he always comes and tracks that person down. And I just want you to know that sin is an axe murderer just like that. It's trying to kill your vitality. It's trying to kill your relationships. It's trying to destroy your good reputation. It's trying to destroy your job. And the only way that you can break sin's power on you is by letting the light of the gospel shine on it. So I want to encourage you today, if you are holding on to some secret sin, if you're holding on to some secret iniquity and doing some things that you know are not in alignment with God's will, you need to find someone you can trust and you need to confess your sin. First, confess it to Jesus. That, Lord, I, I, I'm a sinner and I throw myself on the grace of the cross yet again. I throw myself down at the cross, Lord. I come to you because I know you have a deposit of grace for me that can cover even the most wretched nature of my sin. But if you just confess it to God, let me just tell you, oftentimes that's not sufficient. But you need to tell somebody. You need to be honest and you need to be transparent. And stop living your life as though you've got it all together. Because deep down we know you look great on the outside, you're smiling. But deep down, we know that you have some brokenness in your heart. And that brokenness in your heart is something that only Christ Jesus can fix. And so I want to just take a moment here and just say this. Maybe you don't know Jesus today. Maybe you don't know. You, 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 you're on the fence about the Christian faith. But as we were talking about him and as we were talking about him being lifted up and crucified on your behalf for your sin, you said, you know what? There's something happening and churning in my heart and I don't really understand it. If that's you, I want you to go to the next step station. 
after service. Pastor Jacob is up there with the cool product in his hair, and he would be more than willing. Pastor Jacob Lamar, he'll be more than willing to walk you through the faith today so that you can be solidified in your faith in Christ Jesus. So that you can know him and so that you can walk with him and so that you can experience the forgiveness and healing that he has for you. And maybe you are, you are walking with Jesus today. I want you to find somebody that you trust and that you know. It could be your spouse. It could be your friend. Where you can be honest about the things that are going on in your heart. Because that's why James 5.16 says we go to God for our forgiveness. But he wants you to go to other people for your healing. So Jesus, I thank you so much. For those who are with us in person and those who are joining us online, Lord, we all have brokenness in our lives. We all have tried to conceal our sin and we have lived in ways that are not honoring to you, Lord. And we just come to you right now in Christ's name, Lord, just throwing ourselves at the mercy and the grace of God. Oh, if it hadn't been on for you on our side, Jesus, where would we be? If it wasn't for your grace and your mercy abounding towards us while we were yet still sinners, we wouldn't be anywhere. And Lord, I just come to you asking and pleading for you to save some people in this room. Lord, that the embers of revival would burn. And Lord, that we would be, we would, we would be more hungry for the ordinary gifts of the Spirit. Confession and repentance and prayer. And that we wouldn't just seek to live our lives desperately away from you. So, Lord, let it burn today. Burn in the hearts and the minds of the people that are listening online and watching us right now. Set their hearts on fire so that they can serve you with joy and with passion and walk anew with you in this life, Lord. And so, Lord, if you do it, we'd be so careful to give you all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise in Jesus' name. And if you agree with that, why don't you say amen? Amen. Amen. So listen.